Well, Easter is indeed about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is him being laid in a tomb, a tomb that would be something like this that was chiseled out of the stone. Uh, It is about uh, the Lord Jesus being laid in there and then sealed in the tomb. And when they speak, uh, the scriptures speak of sealing in the tomb. There was actually a a masonry way of doing this. So it's uh, something of a major deal to uh, move that tractor tire size stone out of its track. Uh, there is a real reason why the ladies were asking as they came on Easter morning, who is going to move the stone? Who's going to roll the stone away? Uh, we see this open tomb and we think of John, the reflective one, running faster, arriving at the tomb and stooping down to look in and to take it all in. And Peter more impulsively arriving second and going right on into that empty tomb that is inviting investigation. But Easter is also about Christ's suffering, his suffering that was throughout his life, but culminated in those last couple of days, those last hours of his time here on earth that culminated in his death. And this morning, I want us to understand that the suffering of Jesus is rooted in history. He really lived as a man, and he really suffered in real places in ancient Jerusalem. Much of present-day old city Jerusalem is under 40 and 50 feet of debris because Jerusalem is one of those cities that has been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt so many times. I also want us to consider something of a general timeline of our Lord's suffering as it concentrated in that last day leading up to his crucifixion. And the best way that I know to do this is to hold before your mind's eye this model of ancient Jerusalem at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see here most plainly is something of the temple precinct, that flat area up there. There is a building there, but there's a flat area of several acres Then just to the north and back behind the temple precinct are those four large towers of the fortress Antonio with some 600 soldiers that would have been stationed there. And then down below the temple precinct is the old city of David, the smaller, the oldest part of ancient Jebus that became uh, Jerusalem. But due to the fact that the Jewish historian Josephus gives us very detailed accounts of what the city was made up, and because there is so much archaeological work that has been done in Jerusalem, they're able to locate many of the buildings here. So we can, in our mind's eye, think of Caiaphas there at the high priest's palace close to his name, Think of Pilate being in the governor's quarters that King Herod would have built some time before. Herod Antipas was visiting Jerusalem and was in the Hasmonean palace. Annas, just in recent years, they have discovered what they believe was his home, a a facility of 6,500 square feet on one floor, and some of it is uh, two levels Uh, So there is a significant amount of information. We don't know exactly where the upper room would be, but it's put in this area. This is Thursday evening. And Thursday evening, after the farewell discourse recorded in John, then they sing a hymn and they go out. And as they go out, they're going to go across 
the Kidron Valley, and if this were drawn to scale, those people would need to be back a little bit in a higher elevation in a deep valley going uh, uh, down and back up uh, to the area there of Gethsemane. So it's long about two or three in the morning that Judas would have arrived in the Garden of Gethsemane and he would have kissed Jesus, marking him out as the one to be seized. You remember the goal of the chief priests is not during the feast. And, and, and so in the middle of the night, here they are taking Jesus into um, uh, to be arrested. And we have a greater measure of sympathy for Peter and John, the other disciples, struggling to pray and, at this time, this hour. And then somewhere along two or three in the morning, he was first taken to Annas, the high priest. Annas had been the high priest. He wasn't now the high priest. But Annas was the real power broker. He had five sons that all shared in being the priest. He had a son-in-law who was presently the priest, and that was Caiaphas. So, and then from Annas, uh, then, whoops, on, uh, there's Annas's house that they've just recently uh, discovered. Uh, again, what we're reading in the scriptures is rooted in history. So 3 a.m., we're down here to Caiaphas. And if Annas was in 6,500 square foot, one level home, unusual in that day, complete with an indoor bath in the lower level, uh, unheard of, uh, certainly for the common person in that day. And this is what the high priest's um, palace looked like. Uh, here's the back view of that. So again, Caiaphas and now sunrise, their goal is to, by sunrise, they're coming into the Sanhedrin, the 71 judges that lead Israel. And they generally met there in the temple precinct, though the high priest quarters are big enough that the 71 guys could have met here in these emergency uh, situation. And after sunrise, 6 a.m., they're at the governor's mansion, uh, to speak to Pilate, the Jews stay out on the streets the day of the preparation for the Passover. They can't be defiled. So Herod has to, uh, so Pilate has to run out, speak to them. Then he goes back in and speaks to Jesus. Then he comes back out and asks them, and then he goes back in. You kind of get the sense that, okay, due to the pressures of the Jews, that's why Jesus is going to be, while, why Pilate is going to agree uh, to crucify him. And then uh, at 7 a.m., roughly, he is sent off to Herod Antipas at that Hasmonean palace. And then by 8 a.m., he comes back the second time to Pilate. And then 9 a.m., just outside the gate to the north, uh, is where uh, Jesus would have been crucified and long about three in the afternoon, Jesus is crying out, it is finished. What we are studying of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ are rooted in history. This is not mythical. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not some myth of a newness of life but it is meant by God in the scriptures to convey to us that that Jesus who was stone cold in the tomb was raised bodily to new life in Christ. Well, come with me if you care to on the handout sheet, Roman numeral one. The real and terrible physical suffering of the Lord Jesus. First of all, A, the real and terrible physical sufferings from the hands of the Jewish authorities. Jesus was bound in the garden. It's very striking that in John 18, we have the detail given that as Jesus says to this group, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, 
I am he, and they all fall back to the ground with power coming from Jesus. And then they stand up, and they go over, and they grab Jesus, and they tie him up, and bind him and carry him away. We're told that Jesus was bound again after the Sanhedrin as rendered their supposed decision and sentence of death. They bound him and led him to Pilate. The real and physical sufferings, we are told that those who were in charge of the beating at the high priest's palace, they spat in his face and they blindfolded him and they struck him on the face and they said, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And what we have to keep in mind is that Jesus was a real human being He had real feelings and emotions and real physical pain sensing ability. Jesus knew in advance that he was going to suffer and die. On three different occasions, each with a little more detail, Jesus prophesied to his disciples that he was going to be crucified, he was going to die, and he was going to raise, be raised again from the dead. And this is part of the difficulty for the Lord Jesus. He knows what is going to happen. He has the motivation to stay awake in the middle of the night. And John's account talks about how they came not only with their swords and their spears, but with their torches and lantern. And Jesus, up on the Mount of Olives, uh, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have seen that troop with their lights coming down into the Kidron Valley and up to get him. And if he wanted to be away, he would have been away, but he was a willing victim in our behalf. Secondly, B, the real and terrible physical sufferings from the hands of the Roman authorities. Jesus was scourged. You may be aware enough of the accounts to know that Pilate really wanted to release him. And his wife saying that you have nothing to do with that righteous man because I've been suffering much in a dream because of him. Her emphasis moved him even in that direction. And so Pilate seems to be motivated to give Jesus such a beating and bloody him so that the Jews would be willing to have him simply released. Edersheim, the Jewish believer, uh, writing in a different time in such details that he's dug through regarding the Jews and ancient uh, Jerusalem. Jesus was handed over to the soldiers to be scourged and crucified, although the final formal judgment had not yet been pronounced. Indeed, Pilate seems to have hoped that the horrors of the scourging might move them to not require crucifixion. The scourge was a long whip with its long, skinny leather threads. And then typically they would work into that bits of bone and bits of sharp stone. And then that long whip would be flailed and ripped back to uh, bring severe laceration uh, to the victim we find that this physical suffering of the scourging was added onto. It seems that it's at Herod's, Herod Antipas. Uh, Pilate sends him over there. When he comes back, he's wearing, wearing a royal robe that uh, Herod thought make, uh, would make a greater light of the situation. Oh, he's supposedly a king. Let's put a royal robe on him and beat on him. When he comes back to Pilate, they add a crown of thorns uh, that adds to the pain, that adds to the suffering. Jesus was beaten by those at the high priest, it says, with their hands. 
Now we are told regarding Pilate's men that they are beating him uh, with a rod on the head. And they spat on him and bowed the knee and worshipped him. Jesus was a real human being. He felt the physical pain. He felt the emotional pain. And then Jesus, with Pilate's goal of making this beating to be so bad that he wouldn't have to kill him, uh, Jesus is loaded with that cross piece Think of something like a six by six that he's going to be attached to. And he would have been required then to carry that down the street to the place of the skull. It's likely that the upright piece would have been left in the ground. And then just outside of Jerusalem, if you see that red cross in your mind's eye, there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side. And it is true that the gospel writers don't go into a great deal of detail regarding the process of crucifixion. But guess what? They didn't need to. Anyone living in the first century was very much aware of how Romans crucified people. There was an account on one time the road outside of Rome, I believe it was, they, they crucified 5,000 slaves that were involved uh, in a rebellion. Edersheim looks back and he talks uh, about this, of how uh, the one who was uh, put on a cross, we need not think of something that's 25 feet tall, probably just two or three feet off of the ground, the hyssop that was used with the sponge on it to reach up, it was something that is only about three or four feet. Uh, it's something uh, that tells us that the cross was lowered to the ground. But Jesus, once he arrives there, Simon of Cyrene, uh, carrying that cross piece, he's going to be bound to it, the nails being driven through his uh, hands one at a time. And if he is nailed here, then he's going to have to be roped to the cross. Otherwise, he's not going to be... Uh, it's, you get the picture. And others believe that the, bone, the nail goes into the wrist, uh, that he would be uh, supported there. Sometimes they would give a little seat on the cross. And if, uh, if a man just goes down, eventually he's going to die more quickly. So that's why they gave the seat, so that somebody could suffer longer there, hanging for hours or even for days. The crucifixion was designed to be a slow method of death. Josephus, this historian that I spoke of, had three friends who were crucified, and he speaks of it as the worst sort of death. Uh, the Roman Cicero says, let's not even have the crucifixion to be mentioned among us. It is such a barbaric form of uh, torture. And it's, it's, it's interesting that the Greek Herodotus, the Jewish man, historian Josephus, the Roman Tacitus, the Roman Cicero, the Christian Justin Martyr, and the Christian Irenaeus all speak of crucifixion. They all knew of it and bear testimony to it. And it's interesting to me that God has preserved evidence even for us. In 1968, there at an archaeological dig inside of a tomb, inside what is called an ossuary. It's a stone box where you put the past generation's bones, and then they put the guy's name on the outside. of. For us, we'll call him John, 20 years of age, and his ankle bone is in there. And there is a nail about the size of a pen that is going through that ankle bone. They took a piece of wood about the size of the coaster to make a washer to make sure that nobody slips off of that nail. And so here in 1968, there we have it. Crucifixion really took place. And here's a five and three quarter inch nail 
that has abided into the present. And just as I talk about that, I think of a missionary that was somewhere in deep dark Africa many years ago, and the missionary was talking about Jesus being nailed to the cross. And, and what's a nail? What's a nail? And the missionary prayed, and the next morning when he opened a can, I think it was a can of fruit, and pulled it out, there was a nail on the bottom of the can. This is what a nail is. This is what went through Jesus' hands or wrists. Tacitus, in his Roman history, records the fact of Jesus being crucified under Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. Constantine outlaws it in 315 AD. So thirdly, see, do you believe the biblical account? Do you believe this account of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus? The Bible does not major on the physical suffering, but surely we can take this much and say this much that I have said about the physical sufferings of Jesus and know assuredly that he would have felt all of that pain. Do you believe it? Do you believe in the 1,000-year-old prophecy that this was going to happen? David wrote Psalm 22 a thousand years before Jesus was born of the Virgin. And a thousand years before Christ, David, Psalm 22, uh, gives us the Messiah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verse 16, it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And what is amazing about this prophecy is that crucifixion was not yet invented. It was not yet recorded any time in history. Do you believe that God has put it in David to speak of piercing of hands and feet of the Messiah. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus' hellish suffering was at the center? Says it. Think on that first century 20-year-old John whose ankle bone comes down to us with a nail in it. And think of the real physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Roman numeral two, the real and terrible emotional suffering of the Lord Jesus. Edersheim says, when a sense of sin has been awakened in us, we shall mourn not for what Christ suffered, but for what he suffered for us. It's one thing to think of the physical sufferings of the Lord Jesus and his emotional sufferings. It's quite another to say the only reason he suffered that was that he would be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. First of all, A, Jesus suffered emotionally in the treacherous betrayal by his friend. We all know something of rejection. Even if it's a seven-year-old or a ten-year-old who has been mean to you, you know something of rejection. Those who have gone through the pain of divorce know a, a much more heightened level, much higher level of uh, that of rejection. But here, uh, we hear of uh, Judas, Judas coming and betraying uh, with the symbol of affection. He kisses Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi. And our Lord's response is, do what you're going to do. Let's be on with it. And this again is prophesied by David a thousand years before Christ. Psalm 41 and verse 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, if you're not a believer, I want you to know that this prophecy exists. And I ask you, what are you going to do with that prophecy? 
God has said, this is one more of those details that the Lord Jesus has suffered. And it's not something that they wrote back into the Hebrew Scriptures after Judas happened. Because 250 years before Christ, the Hebrew Scriptures were translated into a Greek version of the Bible, and it's there. My own familiar friend. Secondly, B, Jesus suffered emotionally in the extensive desertion of the disciples. It was not only Judas who did his dastardly deed. And just to go back for a moment on Judas, in re-listening to the ends of each of the four Gospels in the last few days, it's striking that the high priest didn't reach out to Judas. Judas went to them with the intent of getting a little bit of money. What will you give me to betray him? He went to them. Now, he regretted it later, but nonetheless, Jesus would have felt that pain. The disciples as a whole forsook him and fled, Matthew 26 and 56. Peter in particular, no, I I will never desert you. Even if everybody else does, I will not. Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Thirdly, see, he suffered emotionally in the mock trial by the pretentious Jewish leaders. Do you think that Jesus would be bothered by the travesty of justice when they're not supposed to be having trials at night yet? They get their three trials all wrapped up and they got to wait for daylight before they pronounce their verdict. One's gone back and said, well, that time period, Passover, da-da-da, it would be like 5.15 in the morning that the Sanhedrin was rushing through their verdict so they could get Jesus over to Pontius Pilate by 6 a.m. Do you think the judge of all the world is going to notice when he is unfairly treated? (laughs) Do you think the God who spoke the worlds into existence is going to be bothered emotionally when he sees that some that he has made treat him like this? We think of the chief priests, the elders, and all the council, Matthew 26, 59, sought false testimony. All right, so here are the judges, and the judges are out looking. Are you willing to help us out here? We need a lie about Jesus. Uh, What about you? Will you help us out? That's getting frustrating. We can't get any of the liars to agree. But finally, they get two liars that do. And many things were blasphemously spoken against him. Fourthly, D, he suffered emotionally from the abusive treatment of Pilate and Herod. Herod couldn't get Jesus. He was anxious to meet him, anxious to see a a miracle, uh, but he couldn't get Jesus to talk to him. Jesus is just silent, and he talks. Herod works, and he won't. So then he just mocks him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. But Pilate takes the mockery further. All right, you got a robe, you need a crown. Well, we'll make you a crown of thorns. And then they put a reed in his hand, then they take the reed back and they beat on him uh, with it. And they begin to salute him. And some get down on one knee and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And as soon as they say, Hail, King of the Jews, uh, they spit out a hawker and land it on Jesus. Do you think the judge of all the universe is going to be impacted by this? E, he suffered emotionally from the open humiliation by the multitudes. Here is the maker of heaven and earth. 
And the chief priests have been able to move the public so that they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And think of our creator hearing that chant coming not just from a few of the bad apple chief priests, but from the multitude. Think of the public preference for the murderous criminal. I need to release somebody. Do you want me to release Barabbas, this guy who's involved in an insurrection and murdered some people? Or would you like me to give you Jesus like I would like you to choose? No, they choose Barabbas. And then there are those public taunts against his father's love and care. Jesus and the father, eternally, God together. God the father, God the son. Such closeness that is there. And yet, those who pass by blaspheme Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders. He saved others. <laughs> he cannot save himself. If he is the king of the Jews, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. F. He suffered emotionally from the degrading division of his possessions. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who provides everything that you have, everything that you and I need. He is the God who gives it, and now he's hanging on the cross the few things that Jesus has, they divide his garments into four parts and the tunic is seamless. And so they say, well, let's cast lots for this. And again, that prophecy a thousand years before Christ, that Psalm 22 of David, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. How would you feel? Hanging on a cross, your few provisions being divided right out. You know, you know, maybe some bad stuff is going to happen after you're dead and gone. The family's going to do. But here's Jesus. He's still alive. And he sees this. And it would have impacted him. Thirdly, Roman numeral three. The real and terrible spiritual suffering of the Lord Jesus. Our Lord fought against the forces of hell alone. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And who's going to cast out the devil? Who's going to win the battle other than Jesus? And he's going to do it by himself. John 13, 27, after the Lord's Supper, after the piece of bread, Satan entered Judas. Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Paul reflects on this, Colossians 2. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, talking about what Jesus did from the cross. So when we think of the murderous evil of Judas... What will you give me? The priests who delivered him up because of envy and the multitudes. When we think of this, we have to think that it was not only Judas that was impacted by the devil. Our Lord fought the devil, the forces of hell alone. Secondly, B, our Lord embraced his agonizing role as sin-bearer. This was his great sorrow in the garden. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. 
Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. His agonizing role as sin bearer. Hebrews reflects on this. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. So we think of Jesus there in the garden. The disciples are asleep. He's mindful that it's going to be very quickly that Judas is going to come with that group and then everything is going to ratchet up to another level. And how do we think of Jesus? Do we think of him stoically? No, we are to think of him with tears, with vehement cries, with the the. Uh, the pores in his skin, the, the capillaries burst and mixing with the sweat, so there is a sweaty blood that is dropping down from the Lord Jesus. His emotional suffering was genuine. It was real. For, uh, thirdly, see, our Lord was engaged in this spiritual suffering because he bore the sins of his people. He embraced that role, but then it's another thing to have that sin loaded on him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Next verse in Isaiah 53, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Fourthly, D, the spiritual suffering. Our Lord endured the desertion of his father. Judas has done his thing with a kiss. Jesus has assured that the disciples would escape. He wanted them to escape. Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. If you want Jesus of Nazareth, then let all these other men go. So there's a sense which Jesus wanted their lives preserved. He didn't want them in prison. He wanted them to be away from him. But there was that desertion of men. But here's the desertion of God. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the darkness comes at noon. Do you know why the darkness came? It seems to be something of a portrayal of the outer darkness of hell. And Jesus Christ is going to descend in hell when he is bearing the sins of his people. And even as he does that, his father turns his back on him. About the ninth hour, so three in the afternoon, from noon till three, the darkness. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're not to think of this, that Jesus is going through his Rolodex of prophecies that he needs to fulfill. And he said, oh yeah, David said this, so I'm just going to say, my God, my God, why did I, you know, I think I'm supposed to say that, right? No, no, this is something that was pressed out of the Lord Jesus. And he felt it very deeply and very really. It's almost as though he could turn to the Father and say, not you, not you too. And we don't fear being forsaken by God, do we, as Christians? And the only reason that we do not fear being forsaken by God is because Jesus was forsaken by God. In our behalf. But our perfect Savior did not deserve to have that relationship ruptured, if even for three hours. Roman numeral four lessons. Lessons from the real and terrible sufferings of the Lord Jesus. First of all, A. The sufferings of our Lord Jesus draws attention, suffering of our Lord Jesus draws attention to the depth 
of God's love. The depth of God's love. Why would God the Father do this? Why would Jesus the Son do what he did? For Sean 3, 1 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God because of what it took to accomplish that. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here is the love of God. And the Bible teaches us that we love him because he first loved us. But it's speaking of the depth of God's love, which we have to reciprocate. If we're going to be true believers, if we are true believers, the the, the feeling of that love registering on our souls is going to change us and impact us so that we love in return, love God in return, and love particularly our fellow believers in return. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown to us. If you're a Christian here this morning, think back to when you were not. Think back when you were dominated by your selfishness. What, what, was, what was your soul-destroying sin? What was your dominating sin? Were you an arrogant liar? Were you self-centered to the core? Were you as moral as an alley cat? God has shown you love. And God has shown us love to transform us from the inside out. And as we look at the love of God seen in the suffering of Jesus Christ... May God help us to keep us from growing old and brittle and fixed and unfeeling and unloving to others. Part of Easter is the love of God and the love that we're to show in return. Secondly, B, what do we learn? The suffering of the Lord Jesus draws attention to the sufficiency of God's sacrifice for sin. Are you going to go with me through these sufferings of Jesus and and come to the end of our study? Well, I don't don't think Jesus suffered enough. Well, you hadn't even thought to think of that. What do you and I need to add to the ransom price that Jesus Christ has already paid? He's gone through all of this because there is nothing you can add. And if you're thinking of adding any of your supposed good works to the merits of Jesus Christ, to the suffering of Jesus Christ, then you need to see how offensive that is to God and how offensive that is to Jesus Christ. He went through all of this because it was all of this that was necessary in order to forgive your sin and in order to change you. Jesus Christ's death was unique and unrepeatable. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption For the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh so that they could go into the tabernacle in the Old Testament. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Anything else we learn? Thirdly, see. The suffering of the Lord Jesus draws attention to the reality of God's expectation. Jesus was just not involved a little bit in our redemption. His whole life, his whole humanity joined to his true deity. 
And from day one, living a perfect life, then coming into the years of ministry and all that he suffered. Mr. Worldly Wisdom in Pilgrim's Progress advocates that just a touch of religion will do. And that's what a lot of people in the world think. Just, just a touch of religion, that'll be enough. Well, you can't go to Jesus and say, well, thank you very much for giving me just a touch of suffering. No, the reality of what he suffered calls for something of the reality of true transformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The demands of biblical holiness seem so strict and so stringent to some, but not to the Apostle Paul. Looking at what he has done, I am compelled to serve him. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Peter says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, that way of life, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The very real suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ makes a very real demand on your transformation into holiness. Is it harsh? Is it overly strict of God? God the Father who gave his Son, God the Son who gave his life, God the Spirit who helped Jesus to offer himself? As a, is, it, is it harsh? Is it demanding of God? Is it overly strict on God's part to say, I want you to be changed on the basis of my son's death? Fourthly, D, the suffering of our Lord Jesus draws attention to the danger of God's holy wrath. We find in the horrible sufferings of Jesus a strong argument for the biblical doctrine of endless punishment. You say, well, how's that? Well, oftentimes it is argued, how can a loving God punish someone in hell for their sins? But I think if you consider the noonday darkness, the picture of hell that Jesus is going through, that Jesus Christ was absolutely perfect, had never done anything wrong, never told a lie, never had a raised voice, never had a bit of inappropriate anger, absolutely perfect, and yet he endures all of these sufferings and more that we've considered this morning. Here the biblical God meets out this severe punishment for Jesus, his son, and it just washes away that argument that a God of love would never punish a creature that he has made. The loving God sent his perfect son to hell, at least for hours. The loving God sent his perfect son into the world so that he would live a life of humiliation and die as a sacrifice for sin. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you're not yet a believer, that's where you are, underneath the wrath of God. But it need not be that way for you for eternity. Because Jesus has come, because Jesus lived a perfect life, because Jesus went to the cross as our perfect sacrifice, because of all the very real suffering that he has gone through, you don't need to suffer. Peter puts it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just... For the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive.
of the Spirit. And what did Jesus think about this? John 10, he says, I came that may have life, that they may have life, and to have it abundantly. Jesus coming to earth was a mission of mercy. And he says, I'm willing to do this. Hebrews tells us it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the shame of the cross. And it's striking to me in John 12, it's still very close to the end of our Lord's life. He says, my soul is troubled, thinking of the cross, thinking of the suffering. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. He's getting ready to go to the cross. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And that's my hope this morning. Is that I lift up the Jesus who is lifted up in the first century that it will bother someone. Jesus did this because of the sins that I coddle within. And when you see that love, that he will draw all kinds of all kinds of people to himself in love and in faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the empty tomb. But we also thank you for your perfect life and for all of your sufferings that were towards the end of you dying and then you being raised again as the proof that the Father was pleased with your sacrifice for our sins. Father, we pray that you would write on our hearts something of this suffering. May we believe from the core of our beings that we don't need to add anything to the merits of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus. He suffered enough. Write on our hearts the very real expectation that you have. You love us so that we will love you. You initiate, we respond. The love of Christ compels us to not live for ourselves, but to live for you and to live for others. Father, take this word Write it on our hearts. May we remember it so that it can change our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We'll sing in closing.